Hello and welcome to this interview special episode of Tech EU podcast. I am your host, Andrew Degeler. Today I have prepared two interviews to share with you, which are covering a very wide range of topics, namely from assistive tech for visually impaired customers to how an office space marketplace has managed to survive the COVID-19 pandemic so far. So first up for today, WeWalk, a smart white cane and an app to help visually impaired users with their everyday tasks. So hi, it's great to be here. I'm Jean-Marc. I'm WeWalk's Head of Research and Development, and I make sure that everything we do as an organization meets the requirements of our visually impaired community. Um, I myself am visually impaired with Liebler's congenital amaurosis, which gives me a reduced peripheral vision, as well as complete night blindness, basically. So I very much so have a lived experience of visual impairment, and I very much use the products that we create. So it's something that's very close to heart. Right. So what did you do before you, uh, you joined WeWalk? Right. So I've always had a passion for academic research within visual impairment. Before WeWalk, I did my master's in civil engineering and my undergrad as well at Imperial College London. And within my master's project, I was looking at visually impaired mobility on the London underground. And that really, um, uh, pardon the pun, if you'd like, opened my eyes <laughs> to, the, um, to the huge accessibility challenges, which the visually impaired community face on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I would face the challenges you know, since I was a a small child, basically, uh, but I never found a way to quantify them, if that makes sense. Uh, So after having completed my master's at Imperial, I was so inspired to pursue it further that I undertook a PhD in the mobility of visually impaired people as well. And coincidentally, at the very beginning of the PhD, I met up with the wonderful folks, the co-founders at the time, at WeWalk. And really, the journey has been history since then. We realized that our visions were, again, pardon the pun, our visions were so aligned with helping the visually impaired community and having a change on the world, having our mark on the world. And it's been an amazing, amazing journey since then. It's a really wonderful team at WeWalk and uh, one which I'm very lucky to be a part of. Right. So and then let's just move on to, uh, to WeWalk. Uh, what, uh, what is it? Can you describe the product for me? Of course. So quite simply, um, WeWalk is an exercise in simplicity on a tool that really hasn't been innovated on since the Stone Age. I mean, think of the white cane, right? It's a tool which the visually impaired community loves. I mean, I use it, Kershat, our blind co-founder, uses it. A lot of our customer support team who are visually impaired also use it. You know, it's a tool which is ubiquitous with visual impairment. And it's a very useful tool. I mean, it, it gives you lower body obstacle detection. It's a symbol of our independence, basically. The only issue is we're in the 21st century, right? I mean, this is still a stick here. We're, we're, you know, we're telling our blind community to use a stick to cross a road. I mean, okay, you can do it, but surely we could give it some more innovation, right? And this was the idea behind WeWalk. You know, we took a standard cane, you know, we've kept the whole form factor the same, and we've just chopped off the rubber handle, which is just a rubber handle, and we've replaced it with WeWalk. And WeWalk has all the technology bits inside. So it's got an ultrasonic sensor at the very front to give you upper body obstacle detection for low-hanging tree branches, signposts, you know, stuff your usual cane's going to miss. And that already Mm -hmm. increases safety and confidence. But what's really, really cool is that when you connect the WeWalk smart cane to the WeWalk smartphone app, it could do so much more. It really is, uh, you know, an app which we're constantly growing, an app which we're proud of, an app which is actually currently free to download, you know? So we want our visually impaired community to try out our app. And it's got a whole new navigation interface. So, you know, we've built a whole low vision mapping system from the ground up with clock directions, turn-by-turn directions, you know, destination tracking. 
you know, we've got exploration modes in the app. So as you walk past a certain destination, it'll tell you what destination you've walked past. Uh, we even have public transit integrations, thanks to Microsoft Azure, with over 1,500 cities built into the app. So you can find out, you know, what bus is coming to your timetable, how to get to that stop. And when you connect WeWalk to the smartphone app, you can do all of this. You know, you can find out about buses, navigate, all that good stuff straight from your cane. So you can leave one hand free, you can focus on your surroundings, focus on the environment around you, get that obstacle detection whilst leaving your phone in your pocket. So, so from what I understand, uh, WeWalk has this special uh, sort of trackpad on it, and from there you can control your phone, including the app uh, that, you, that, that you have developed. Exactly. We've got a trackpad, a speaker, and a microphone for voice feedback and voice commands. And we even have a bunch of other sensors, like a compass built into the cane, to actually improve the accuracy of navigation. Yeah, that's interesting. And also, from what I understand, the cane part itself, it can be sort of uh, swapped uh, uh, for for another type of cane, right? So, like, it's just the handle that uh, uh, that has all the uh, all the internals, the electronics. Exactly, you're 100% correct. So we only manufacture the handle. Everything else is just a standard cane. And we actually ship uh, WeWalk with an Ambutech graphite shaft. Uh, so, you know, the actual cane itself is a really great quality, super light cane. And if you want to change your tips as well, you know, they're just a standard clip-on tips. You can use a pencil tip, a marshmallow tip, you know, whatever you please. It's just a simple case of unscrewing the WeWalk handle and um, using the extra adapter which we provide in the box to screw onto your own cane. And we provide you with a cane to get you started anyway, but, you know, we, we want this experience to be as familiar to the standard cane experience as possible. And so fundamentally, the WeWalk, uh, uh, as in like the hardware and uh, WeWalk, the app are not, uh, are, are separate from each other, right? So they're meant to work together, but we've kind of opened it up because we mm -hmm. realized that the app itself is so useful. I mean, we've had to build our own navigation. We've had to build our own exploration, voice assistant and all that stuff. So we thought, hey, you know, in the end, as a company, our goal is to get visually impaired people out there, right? So let's just give it to them. You know, let's, let's just literally make this app available, download it. And if you feel that, you know, I'm loving the app, it's, it's all great. You know, I'm loving this navigation. Let's take it a step further. You know, let's get a WeWalk smart cane so I can control this whole thing you know, whilst on the move without having to take out my phone, then that's even better, obviously. So it's, it's you know, we're, we're, we're trying to be as flexible as possible, I'd say, with getting people out there. Right. And uh, what stage are you at as a company? So is it already, is uh, WeWalk already available in retail? Can, uh, can everyone, can anyone buy, buy it already? Yep, indeed. So we've come to market. We actually came to market last year, mid last mm -hmm. year, uh, following a successful Indiegogo campaign. So a massive, massive thank you to all our backers and the people that have supported us to this point. And yeah, so we've come to market in May. WeWalk is out there. You know, people can purchase it. They can purchase it through our distributors, through our own website, or just through contacting us. And we can guide our customers through purchasing the product. And we're now at a stage where we're just scaling up. We've realized that, okay, you know what? The market demand for this cane exists. People have given us some great feedback so far, you know, stuff that we're doing well, stuff that we can improve. You know, we're all about improvements, all about sort of really putting our head down and building on the foundation that is WeWalk, you know, our, our, our initial R&D. And so we've mm -hmm. got loads of R&D projects. I mean, one which we're going to talk about, the Microsoft R&D project, the AI for Good project. So we're really sort of at a stage now where we're putting our head down and we're constantly making, you know, these innovative R&D projects to keep WeWalk uh, growing and growing. 
Right. And uh, so I'm not very familiar with this topic, but just wanted to check something. So at $600, it's not exactly the most affordable thing, I'm afraid. So is there a way uh, for uh, visually impaired uh, customers uh, to get this uh, paid for uh, fully or partially by uh, their uh, insurance or whatever covers their needs? Right. So I actually wouldn't be the best person to talk about this, but I will hint to say that as an organization, uh, we are continuously working with distributive partners, with local governments and local councils uh, to basically try to find a way to make WeWalk as cost-effective and affordable as possible. Because as I said, you know, as an organization, we're all about making sure that you know, people can actually access our technology. You know, we've made efforts to make sure that we are as accessible to different demographics as possible. So as an organization, we're always open to having discussions with distributors, insurance companies. You know, we do a lot of work with local council and local government. Well, at least we're we're starting to and really engaging partners such as telecom operators even to try to find ways to to bring WeWalk to our customers through different Mm -hmm. mediums, if you'd like. Right. And uh, out of curiosity, so for the navigation and all, are you using uh, one of the uh, existing mapping solution, uh, which is the one of your choice? We are. So the idea behind the WeWalk app is we're collecting data from a range of different sources and bringing them all together under one roof. So one of the issues as a visually impaired person that we've always had is you kind of have one separate app to do separate things. You might use one app for exploration, one app for navigation. And you know when you're walking outside and you, know, you already have your visual impairment to deal with and avoiding obstacles and all that, that could be quite tough. So the idea behind the services we pull from is we, at WeWalk is we've done a careful analysis of all the different available APIs and backend solutions that exist, and we've brought them together. For instance, you know, using Microsoft Azure for our um, our public transport integration, uh, you know, using uh, Google's routing algorithms for our navigation. So we're always looking at ways to use the best backend services and collecting them under one roof, which is the WeWalk app. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds great. And uh, so I've read uh, in the announcement uh, uh, that uh, I got beforehand uh, about this voice assistant that you're uh, working on, and you also mentioned it today. So what uh, what is this going to be about? Is it going to be part of the app that you want to release? Exactly. So everything, the idea is to make WeWalk this personal hub, basically. So it's got all your mobility tools in one place. So the voice assistant, very much so, is an add-on to the existing WeWalk app. So you know our WeWalk customers right now can already try out the beta of that Mm -hmm. voice assistant app. And the idea behind it is, when we first started out, we were using another voice assistant, uh, Alexa. You know, we, we, oh, I'm not gonna say it too loud now, the house is gonna (laughs) gonna go crazy. But you know, it's a great tool, don't get me wrong. It really is such a useful um, tool. But for someone that's visually impaired, you're out in the middle of the street, you're trying to get to a train station. It just simply wasn't really designed for that, you know? So the idea behind our voice assistant is we want to make one that really builds on the requirements of our visually impaired community. You know, one that understands that, oh, okay, I am a voice assistant designed for mobility. When you pick up your cane, I'm going to tell you about the weather because I know you're going to be using me outdoors. And when you're walking down this path, you know, I'm going to realize you want to get to a train station. So I'm going to fire up our own built-in navigation with clock directions, learning what the user wants when they need it, basically. And we really do believe, obviously, you know, we're in the early stages of this. That's the whole point of the Microsoft project. You know, we're learning. It's a learning experience. But we really, really want to, you know, to create this, to really build this ecosystem. Right. And when you say clock directions, you mean that it would uh, tell the user, like, uh, turn uh, to uh, one, uh, uh, one hour, turn to nine hours? Exactly. You've hit the nail on the head. So that's sort of no. this microscopic level navigation because, you know, you need it. You can't rely on your site to detect 
how sharply the turn is or what direction you're walking in. So we're finding all these ways to deliver information more innovatively. Right. And uh, so before and before we get to Microsoft, uh, I, I think we're bearing the lead here, but uh, I, I had so many other questions. Uh, the last one also from the uh, announcement that I read before, the human behavior model, uh, that mm-hmm. also something you're going to release next year, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, what, is the, what, what is this about? What is it going to be? Sure. So the human behavior model really is an output of the AI for a project, which we're going to come into. Mm -hmm. Uh, So perhaps I can give a bit of a teaser. Um, So the idea behind the AI for a project is because we have some interesting sensors in WeWalk, we have a gyroscope and an accelerometer, as well as all the sensors built into your mobile phone, you know, we can actually really begin to understand how the visually impaired person is behaving on a day-to-day basis. You know, of course, with consent and for people that sign up to the program, this sort of mobility tracking app. You know, think of it like Fitbit for visually impaired people. Historically, and, you know, this still exists, you know, people do it all the time. Visually impaired people undergo mobility training or sight loss rehabilitation, sort of activities to try to get us more independent and mobilizing, you know, on our own using what sight we have left and using our other senses. Now, the issue is that mobility trainers really haven't had an easy mechanism to follow up with their visually impaired trainees. And follow-ups are important. You know, you have to have refresher courses, perhaps a few months, a year, two years down the line after your initial consultations, essentially, or training sessions. And in certain countries, especially, you end up having huge numbers of caseloads. You can have 40, 50 visually impaired people per mobility trainer. And this is something which extends to academia, to ophthalmologists. You know, there's been no real way of understanding these microscopic cane behaviors, like the length of the arc of the cane, the midline of the cane, you know, important metrics that can really tell you how the visually impaired person is progressing, especially when it comes to something which we call functional vision. So how much time they're spending outdoors, how they're using their vision, are they seeking employment, are they mobilizing in new environments? And so using these sensors built into WeWalk, I know I said I'd give a teaser, but hey, well, that's just, (laughs) there you go. I I get a bit too excited when I talk about this. Um, You know, we can really pull out this data in a really accessible way. So, you know, you're not asking your user to wear a wrist strap or, you know, to do anything differently. You're just saying, hey, just use your cane as you typically would. And we're going to give you all this great data. You know, you're going to see your progress. You're going to, you know, monitor your, your, you know, almost gamify it. You're going to see how you're doing compared to other people with a similar visual impairment, really opening up this whole new product category, all from this cane. And I think this really plays testament to, to what we're trying to do with WeWalk, which is we've built this foundation, this product, if you'd like, with the obstacle detection sensors, with these sensors built into it. And we're now really looking at ways to, to make the most, to really maximize what we could do with our product. Right. And this uh, behavior model, is, uh, is it something that you're going to open up or sort of license to others? We hope to open it up. We hope that, you know, other academics, clinical researchers, mobility trainers who are creating new mobility standards even. Like I said, our vision really is to, to help the community, you know, to help the mm-hmm. people involved in it, be it directly in the community or people that are influencing it from the outside. So we definitely want to be at conferences. We want to be publishing papers. You know, we want to get this information out there. Right. Okay, so now let's talk uh, more in detail about this uh, Microsoft uh, program that you've got into. So what does it actually mean for the company in practice? What do you get out of it? And what are the outcomes that uh, you expect uh, from it? Right. So the Microsoft journey at WeWalk really has been quite an incredible one. Uh, so this is not something we've started recently. We, we have actually been working with Microsoft since February of 2019 as part of their AI for Good cohort. 
Now, the idea behind this, and this was actually the first AI for Good cohort in the UK, is Microsoft brings together a bunch of different organizations specializing in accessibility, the environment, energy, all of that good stuff, and separates them into different groups under one cohort. And then they run this, essentially, think of it like an incubator plus. So, you know, Mm -hmm. with commercialization sessions, technical sessions with Microsoft leaders, you know, loads of different facets at the Microsoft Reactor here in the UK, in London. Obviously, pre-COVID, we were very lucky to be part of that sort of in-person cohort. And we learned a lot. I mean, a lot about Microsoft's backend, Azure's machine learning studio, Microsoft's cognitive services. And those sessions really helped us build the foundations. You know, they helped us understand where we want to use AI. Because it's very easy to go, well, you know what, we want to use AI. And then what? You know, like, okay, we're just going to use AI. What are we going to do? What are we going to do with it? So that really helped us sort of shape and solidify the journey that we want to go on. And following that program, we actually realized that, hey, we can work together. Let's do a long-term partnership. And we actually applied for the AI for Accessibility grant, uh, which is a program run by Microsoft, which includes support and this grant, to help us actually deliver on this idea that we had conceptualized within the reactor. And, you know, obviously, just a shout out to all the amazing Microsoft people. I mean, Sakip Sheikh, Seeing AI, Amelie from the Reactor, who, who leads it, and Claire, Yanis, who's no longer there. But you know, those guys are amazing. And they really, really helped us shape where we are going today. And after we applied for this AI for Accessibility program, we got accepted. That was the press release we had, I think, almost two weeks ago, three weeks ago now. Mm-hmm. We actually put our head down and we got to work. So the project started around July-ish. So the beginning of July, um, we had a couple of new recruits as well. And since then, we've done a big literature review. We've gone through loads of um, loads of previous literature. We've spoken to loads of mobility trainers, people from Australia, Bashar Ibrahim from VA, people from the University of Illinois in Kentucky. Uh, you know, those guys have been super useful. And we've been making sure that everything we're building within this application is essentially validated by the people that might be using it. So we literally had like two-hour sessions with each going, what do you want to see in this mobility tracking application? How do you want us to deliver this information? What actually is useful to you? And now mm-hmm. we're in the process of actually following a Microsoft hackathon three, two weeks ago now. Um, again, n- another three days of really intense work, intense hackery, basically. We were able to essentially build our first concept, our first MVP, if you'd like, really in the early stages now. So we still have loads to do. We have to collect more data from users. We have to, from our test group, You know, we really have to fine tune what we're doing now. But we're really excited because, you know, now we've conceptualized it. We've realized what backend services we're using, Azure ML Studio, and again, the great services Microsoft offers. We've got our literature review done, and we've got our mobility trainers, you know, spoken to and tested. It literally really is just about doing it now. Right. So I do understand the academic output of it, uh, but uh, if we're talking about we work as a business, so how viable is it as a business? Like, what's uh, what's your sort of uh, uh, market estimations? Oh, we believe it's hugely viable. And think of it this way, right? Think of how revolutionary things like Fitbit have been. Think of things like Apple's health kit, step counters. Think of it's such a simple thing, almost, right? It's it's not it's nothing mind-blowingly complex. Of course, the back end is complex, but the idea is so simple, but it's it's one that people rely on. You know, it's one that really is an amazing reflection of how active someone is being. And this is especially for people that are visually impaired, because, and again, this is speaking from personal experience here and, and from loads of community engagement that we've done. 
Within the visually impaired community, you have a whole range of different abilities. When people come to my age, 30, well, I'm not 30, 24, but when sort of people come to sort of my ages and later, sort of around 30-ish, 40, ensuring high activity is really important. Because if you're not active, if you're not seeking employment, if you're not seeking education, it's very easy to sort of create this vicious cycle of, of staying at home, not being active, especially with the pandemic now where visually impaired people that have always relied on physical assistance me personally as well, it can be very restrictive. And so having an application like WeWalk that almost guides you and holds your hand and says, okay, we're going to navigate you to somewhere today. We're going to give you the voice assistant. We're also going to give you metrics on how you're doing, You know what journeys you found difficult. If we've noticed that you've had a collision, for instance, or if we notice that your confidence or average walking speed is decreasing, or if we notice that you had a particularly bad journey, you know, we can feed that information back to you. You can take notes on that journey. Maybe there was an obstacle which you bumped into, which you want to remember for next time. Maybe you want to contact your mobility trainer because we've seen these metrics change. You could do that easily. You know, we feel this is another very important piece in this complete mobility package, this personal hub vision, you know, where we really are giving our community all the tools. They can choose to use them or not. You know, we're totally open to people using things and, and picking and choosing what they use. But it really is an important facet in delivering this this overall vision. And uh, so, and another question that's more of uh, more about uh, business, uh, the business side of things. What's the competition like? Are there other sort of smart canes, uh, smart uh, solutions for visually impaired that do the same thing? So we'll say that we don't really see others as competition here. We really see that anyone that's doing something for the visually impaired community and to help get us out there is doing a wonderful job. And in the end, the market decides, the market picks and chooses, right? Uh, you know, we all have different abilities. You know, a WeWalk is a long cane device. Some other people might have different preferences. They might want head-mounted devices, for instance. We really see ourselves as complementary. If anything, our mm. biggest competition is the, the white cane, like, you know, the tool which we've been using for centuries. You know, how do we convince our visually impaired community to embrace and adapt technology? You know, how do we, how do we get them to realize, you know, the cane is lovely. We're still providing a cane, but we're just giving you that that extra bit of convenience when you need it. And that extra bit of convenience can make a huge difference. So I'd say, yeah, I'd say our, our, our biggest competition is really sort of um, engaging with our visually impaired community who are existing cane users and showing them what we will could do for them and really being open to demo days, which we do a lot of public engagement, you know, working with distributors and organizations to let people try a WeWalk, uh, you mm -hmm. know, before going for it. You know, those are the sort of ways we've been trying to exceed the competition, which is essentially, as I said, that 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 came. Right. And if we sort of uh, try to get a bigger picture here, so you've been working on uh, uh, on mobility issues and uh, assistive tech for uh, for many years now uh, in the academia, how do you see the field changing in general? Like how do how much uh, how much sure. does it improve? Well, actually, I'm going to shift this from a personal perspective to a more broader perspective to the organization that helped found WeWalk, uh, which is a Young Guru Academy. Uh, so WeWalk, you know, is a social innovation project which came out from the Young Guru Academy from social um, entrepreneurs uh, back in 2017. So before that, the YG has worked on so many other innovations. You know, they've worked on indoor navigation systems through the My Dream Companion application, uh, through um, not just indoor positioning, but also um, audio description within movie theaters, actually reading mm -hmm. out what's happening on screen, talking newspapers. So the experience isn't just from the market outside, but there's been a huge change within our own organization as well. You know, we've seen uh, demands change and grow. And it's been one which has been, I'd say, um, from observation and from where we're seeing the market going, 
quite linear. You know, we've realized mm-hmm. that, okay, we have to have a foundation. You know, the foundations of electronic travel aids have always been sort of obstacle detection ultrasonics. Then the smartphone came in. Visually impaired technology had to catch up. Then we had mapping services come in, outdoor mapping services. We had to catch up. Indoor navigation, people started with beacons and realized beacons are great, but we need to do much more. So let's say it's been growing steadily, but what it really needs now, I feel, is refinement. You know, it needs a sort of these innovative R&D projects, like the Microsoft AI for A project, which we're working on, you know, like the extension of the indoor navigation project being worked on by the Young Guru Academy. You know, it needs all these different systems that people are doing to just come together under one roof in one big step, one big sort of disruptive step to provide this all-inclusive experience. And it goes back to the point I made earlier about sort of how the smallest differences make the biggest impacts on visually impaired people's lives. It's okay to have a market filled with a hundred different solutions, each doing their own really great thing. But if they don't talk to each other, if they don't interface, they're not going to be that effective for someone that's visually impaired. You know, in the end, we're out on the street. We have 10 apps on our phone. It's difficult as it is to navigate these 10 different applications. And you have a different solution like a wristband or something. There has to be this collaboration. There has to be this sort of coming together of these initiatives. And I think, number one, we're in, a, we're in a position to do that. You know, we're really aiming to do that with our partners and Microsoft and Imperial and IUK. Uh, but that's really where we're going to right now. That's where the market really should be heading. Like, how do we bring all these different services together under one roof? Right. And uh, like, just the final question, and I think it's more of uh, my own uh, really like curiosity. I'm not sure I'm going to leave it here, but uh, what's your what's your own like tech stack? What do you what do you use? So we walk uh, obviously like what's uh, the what's the other hardware and software that you use on a daily basis as a visually impaired customer? That's a good question. So I like many people with a hereditary uh, congenital um, eye condition. Uh, try to make the most use of what remaining site I have left. I'm very stubborn. And I think, you know, it's not a good thing. Well, it's a good thing in some cases, but uh, not a good thing in other cases. So I am sort of growing my arsenal, if you'd like, because I've realized that, hey, look, my vision isn't stable. A lot of people in, with my age in this condition start to lose their vision. We really have to be open to this technology. So, so far, I use WeWalk. I use the app all the time. I kid you not, it has become my number one favorite best navigation app. I'm not just saying that because I work for WeWalk. Genuinely, we when we had our beta app ready uh, back in February, I remember Gyokan, uh, one of our other co-founders here in, in London, and we were racing each other. I was like, hey, look, we've just released the beta <laughs> version of our app. And he was using another navigation app. You know, let's see who can get there first. And I got there first. So it's on camera now. I'm just reminding him. <laughs> But, um, you know, it's been super useful. On a day-to-day basis, in daytime, I use my small symbol cane uh, since I still have enough vision left. I use a lot of high-contrast software, uh, so using mm-hmm. uh, Windows' own built-in high-contrast software. I also use uh, TalkBack uh, on my Android device. When I had an iPhone previously, I used to use VoiceOver, which was a very, very useful tool. I am looking at getting into JAWS for certain text-based elements on my PC, but I haven't made that shift yet just because I've been dealing with zooming in and contrast quite well, but I feel like eventually I'm going to sort of have to really get into that. And what is this, sorry? I'm not sure. So JAWS is an on-screen narrator, basically. It'll tell you what's on your mm. screen. It's like voiceover and talkback for Android and iOS, uh, but except for, well, your computer, basically. So right. it's, it's, a, it's a tool which, thinking of getting into, you know, it's always good to sort of familiarize your, yourself with these tools to really understand what they could do. Because you, 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 know, you, know, you never know until you know. It's one of those things where you never know what you're capable of and how much easier your workflow can be when you use these tools. So it's really an exploration journey for me right now. 
Understood. Jean-Marc, thank you so much for joining. Thanks a lot for answering all these questions and uh, good luck uh, with your uh, research, with all the engagement you've gotten with WeWalk. Thank you so much. Honestly, it's, it's been great here. I always love rambling on about our AI for A project. So I hope um, <laughs> that you enjoyed that. And uh, just as one last thing for me, at least. Sure. Uh, one of, you know, at an organization, and again, I've said this so many times now, but we're really, really about the individuals in our community. So if anyone wants to reach out personally to us through our website, through our support email, even by contacting me, uh, you know, we're always happy to just talk visual impairment, discuss WeWalk, you know, discuss collaboration and ways to grow as an organization. You know, we're totally flexible. We're, we're open to, to seeing what people want and, and, hey, trying our best to give it to them. So thanks for having me on here. This is great. Thank you so much. And the second conversation that I wanted to share today is with Tushar Agarwal, uh, the co-founder and CEO at Hubble, a prop tech company based in London that pre-pandemic marketed itself as the UK's largest online marketplace for office space. Let's check this out. Yeah, if you can just uh, tell me more about yourself first and then about uh, the company that uh, you founded. Yeah, sure. Uh, so my name is uh, Tushar Agarwal. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Hubble. Uh, which is HubbleHQ.com. Previously, I used to work in investment banking. Uh, so that's sort of my my background, which is finance and economics. And whilst I was there, sort of the idea for Hubble was, was born. So, you know, at that point in time, we were advising uh, lots of businesses around, you know, lots of larger corporates around their sort of financial strategy um, and also lots of smaller businesses. And one of the key trends that I kept seeing was that a lot of the larger businesses um, were locked into a huge amount of real estate leases. Uh, at that point in time, you know, commercial real estate, the average lease length was something like 15 to 20 years. Um, but they needed, uh, they actually didn't need all that space. Uh, you know, as their business was becoming more digital or they were retailers and doing more e-commerce um, or they had more and more people, say, work from home or more freelancers, they actually needed less and less of that space. Uh, but there was no way to offload that cost. So they still had to keep on paying that rent for those leases for the space that they weren't using. Um, and on the flip side, when we were advising much smaller companies, one of the key problems that they would have is um, access to real estate on a flexible basis because they couldn't afford to take on a 10-year commitment or a 15-year commitment. What they wanted was something that was a lot more flexible. And so that's kind of where the seed in my head was born around, uh, or you know, a sort of a thesis around, well, if you think about how digitization is going to affect the world over the next sort of 10, 20, 30 years, what will happen is that larger companies, more and more larger companies would need less and less space. More and more smaller companies will be started because you know the, the cost of capital of starting a company has plummeted. And those smaller companies will, will grow or will have very flexible headcounts. So how does the real estate industry respond to that trend? And it feels like there's going to be a big market failure um, on, that, on that front. So um, I actually left my, my job to go and explore that idea. You know, I felt it was a really, really big idea. I felt that it was going to have a huge impact on the world. And really, no one was thinking or talking about this at the time. So this was around 20, 2013, so about seven mm -hmm. years ago. Um, and that's when I joined a program called Entrepreneur First. So back then, it was very, very new. Um, but, you know, at the moment, I think Entrepreneur First is probably the biggest creator of, of technology startups in, in Europe and maybe even one of the largest creative technology startups in the world. 
And that's where I met my co-founder, Tom, who was um, previously a computer scientist. Um, he worked at IBM. And we started exploring this idea together. And that's kind of where the first version of Hubble was born. So the first version of Hubble was very specifically an Airbnb for office space. So that was um, going to companies that had excess desk space or office space that um, they could let out uh, and basically renting that out to much smaller companies that wanted, you know, either a handful of desks or, or, or an office on a flexible basis. And that was really pre WeWork, right? At that point in time, WeWork was one site in Manhattan rather than this like global brand that everyone knows about now. And what kind of evolved over time was the co-working and flexible office market exploded after WeWork became this big brand. Um, and flexible office became went from about being about half a percent of total office space on average in large cities to about 7% of total office space within five years. So huge amount of growth. And right. what, what Hubble ended up becoming at that point in time was um, kind of like a, if you think about the flexible office brands, kind of like hotels, so kind of like WeWork is perhaps um, a Hilton or Regis is maybe a Marriott, you needed a, a booking.com or Expedia equivalent uh, to match supply and demand at scale, provide really good user experience um, and work in a market that was going from being um, a low volume market that would typically be dealt with by commercial real estate agents to something that was higher volume with smaller transactions that only technology can can enable. Um, so we ended up sort of becoming that. And that's really what we were from about 2015 to 2020. Um, and and that's what, you know, that's that's what we've been doing. And we've, we've basically grown Hubble into London's largest online marketplace for flexible office space. Uh, Pre-COVID, we got to the point where we were placing a new business in a new office every three hours. So that was the sort of volume wow. we were doing. So yeah, that's 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 a, a quick background on, on Hubble and where we got to until lockdown. Right. <laughs> right. And uh, we will get to the lockdown uh, in just a minute. But before, just a, a quick uh, thing for myself, just to, to understand a bit better. So how does the platform look for someone who is looking for an office and how does it look for the let's say demand side person yeah sure so so for, for for a business typically looking for an office and typically our customers are not freelancers or, or solopreneurs they're typically small medium-sized businesses the average size is about 20 30 person company the way that it would look is is basically um, a technology platform that looks similar to a booking.com or Expedia experience. You have a huge amount of listings. You have up-to-date availability. You have 100% coverage across the London market. Um, so you can essentially go through that self-serve experience if you want to. Um, the alternative is that you can actually, we've got an entire team of, of advisors as well. So what you can do is you can have a hybrid experience where you use technology to, to sort of find, locate, do a lot of your viewings, um, but you have someone behind the scenes advising you on some aspects of that transaction and even mm -hmm. driving those sorts of negotiations. Um, and on the office provider side, um, it's essentially um, a platform where you can list your inventory, you can update it, you can receive inquiries, viewing requests, um, and you can also get a lot of data around how you're performing versus your peers and what's happening in the market. And your business model is? Business model is, is a very simple marketplace business model. So we make money every time we successfully place someone into an office space. 
And uh, who pays both sides or just one side? Uh, just the office provider pays. Just the office provider, right. And uh, uh, did you have any sort of limitations, like how how long uh, does it uh, does it have to be? Does the contract have to be for an office and so on? Um, no, we we basically um, typically flexible office contracts end up on average around 10, 10 to 14 months. So, mm -hmm. um, and that's really a sign of the maturity of the market. So back in 2014, when we launched, the average stay was maybe three months and that was mm -hmm. smaller businesses. But as the market has matured and more mature businesses are, are, are going down the flexible office route versus the traditional lease route, for them, 12 months is still super flexible versus a seven-year lease or a 10-year lease. Yeah, <laughs> most certainly. Yeah. Right. Okay. So let us address the elephant in the room. So the company I see is still afloat. You're still uh, saying that you're uh, the co-founder and uh, the CEO. So what's been happening since the first lockdown? What did you see? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the first lockdown in London hit around mid-March. And um, there were some interesting things going on because the first quarter of 2020 was by far the most successful three months we've ever seen as a business. And, really? um, you know, we were doing huge amount of volume. Um, we were getting amazing clients and customers. We were actually seeing a lot of the traditional um, real estate landlords who would typically do long-term leases actually enter the flexible world. And they were appointing us as a way to market those properties. Um, and we were actually in the middle of raising a Series B funding round. So we'd actually kicked off a Series B funding round around Feb. And we hmm. actually only had cash in the business until August, because you typically kick off when you have six months of, of runway left. And so when the lockdown hit, we were in advanced discussions with a handful of investors. It was looking likely we would complete that funding round. But um, you know, as of mid-March, basically the entire market evaporated overnight. It went from, you know, it basically lost 95% of its volume within the first week. And at that point in time, no one knew what was going to happen, right? It was sort of everyone was looking day by day uh, at the the daily news conferences from the government of what was going to happen, um, you know, what this even was. No one even knew how bad coronavirus was. It was so, so everything yeah. was such an unknown. So we um, we basically had to take evasive action. So had we had we continued on that on that front, um, we you know we would have had had to shut the business down. So we had to um, cut costs by about 70%. So we ended up letting go of about 60% of our team. So our team went from about 54 people to 22 people. Um, there was a furlough scheme in the UK. So those people mm -hmm. were, were sort of like still um, technically employed for quite a while. And we were hoping that things would, you know, resume back to normal earlier than they did. But unfortunately, you know, we, you know, that, that didn't happen. Uh, that early so we had to let those people go we also uh rather than doing a series b which we ended up putting on pause we ended up doing a, a bridge funding round with our existing investors and they were you know they were really really supportive um we also had in the uk something called the future fund where the government provided mm -hmm. match financing as well so that that really helped get that deal over the line and you know we did that in very precarious circumstances where no one knew what was going to happen you know, is, how long is the office market going to be dead? And should we really fund this business, which is reliant on the office market uh, coming back? So there was a lot of questions that we had to answer, and that, that was difficult to do. And so 
um, we kind of, we've kind of come out of that. We've got um, a decent amount of runway now. So we've got a bit of time. And um, what we've been really trying to figure out is what does the future of where we work look like, you know, post, post COVID? Um, how, how much will the developments of COVID affect the longer term or will things just sort of snap back to where they were um, after there's a vaccine or, or people go back. So we've been spending a lot of time trying to trying to figure out what those trends should be um, and, you know, how we should be adapting our business model to to respond to that. Mm -hmm. Get it. So you you still got 22 people. What are they even doing? Uh, well, there's, there's, still, there's still activity, right? So um, the first thing that they're doing is um, we're still getting business. So Um, whilst the flexible office market volumes dropped by about 95% in March and April time, they came back to around 40%, 50% of volumes by about September. Mm. So the market was actually coming back. And what was really interesting was um, flexible office space was the only market that was coming back. So m the traditional lease market in London was still really, really challenging. Um, but flexible spaces were, were, were coming back because people were saying, well, We don't want to commit to a five-year lease right now, um, but we're happy to commit to something for a few months or we're happy to take an office for a few days a week. And the flexible office market is the only market that can enable you to do that sort of transaction. Um, so we've still got, you know, we've still got maybe 30, 40% of the same volume we were doing mm -hmm. I mean, through the platform, which is, which is great. Yeah, that's great. Um, and, and flexible office space is becoming a much more, attractive option for all businesses, um, you know, large corporates as well as small, medium-sized businesses that we're dealing with before. Um, and the other stuff that the team are working on um, is basically adapting to this new world, right? So there's mm -hmm. a few interesting things that have already happened. One is um, a, a further need for flexibility, even within flexible office space. So flexible office spaces used to be rented out with two, two specific types of products. So one product was hot desking or co-working. Um, mm -hmm. The other product was a private office space. And so right. what was happening was that, you know, private office space was actually becoming the biggest part of, um, of the revenue, ge revenue generator for these businesses, but also the biggest part of the footprint. So you, in 2014, you used to have flexible office buildings with 70% co-working, 30% private offices. And actually by the beginning of this year, that ratio had completely flipped. Hmm. Um, and what people are now demanding is sort of these hybrid offerings where they say, well, we want a private office, but actually we only want it for two days a week. So then there's an interesting problem that the office provider has of also pretty much doing an office timeshare, right? Almost like you did mm -hmm. share on a holiday home over the year. Um, can we find two companies with similar requirements that one company can take the office Monday and Tuesday and the other company can take the same office Wednesday to Thursday, Wednesday to Friday. Um, and how do we manage that logistically in terms of like, you know, it's, it's a pretty big, big thing to try and figure out. Yeah. There's a lot to manage. I mean, so where do you keep your stuff, for example, while you're not using the office? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, and, and so some of the office providers are dealing with challenges like um, there's some larger corporates who've shut down their full office Mm -hmm. They're now coming to the flexible office providers and they're saying, we need space for 150 people every Monday. That's it. <laughs> and and we, they need to have all their equipment there. So they need all the, all the monitors and peripherals, et cetera. 
And so therefore you basically need to figure out a way that all that stuff can be there when people arrive, but it can be stored for the other four days of the week. <laughs> so, so these, so these are the sort of really interesting challenges that they're dealing with. And from our side, we have to basically adapt that and be able to market that in a you know interesting way because if those if those office providers are working hard to be able to adapt and and offer that product, we should be able to tell the world that that's what they're doing and be able to make that searchable and and easy to do. So that's some of the work that we're doing. But um, there's also some other work that we're doing, which is around you know is there room for um, an, an evolution of of old Hubble into a mm-hmm. new Hubble, which actually is um is a proponent for the future of for the future of work which actually takes into account you know this like hybrid way of working or people are going to opt for um a, a configuration of their office which is something in between working on the hq working at home and also working from third spaces like co-working spaces meeting rooms all those sorts of locations so we're currently figuring out behind the scenes you know where we play a part in in that future Right. And by the way, you mentioned that uh, uh, the market was coming back towards September, but then another lockdown uh, uh, came along. So did it uh, did it deep once again afterwards? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. So it went, it went from 40% of pre-COVID levels back down to 15 to 20% of pre-COVID levels. And that's kind of where we've been at really since October. Right. So hopefully in Jan, we, we've already started to see as a result of the vaccine news, In the last couple of weeks, mm-hmm. people are becoming a bit more confident around making decisions, real estate decisions for the new year. Um, so we're already starting to see some activity pick up already in anticipation of um, going back to normal in some way in maybe the first six months um, of, of 2021. Did you see the prices go down? Yeah, so prices, t- prices took a while. So prices was quite interesting. So On the traditional office front, um, London was already at a point where there was over-demand. So, you know, London mm-hmm. office prices have been skyrocketing for the past 10 years, like super, super high. And the vast majority of those offices had long-term leases and tenants who had already started paying rent at, at the top of the market. So actually, the the actual baseline rents didn't really adjust this much over this year um, because actually they already had those commitments and the majority mm-hmm. of those people had said, yes, we'll pay for this year. So maybe some of those landlords made a few concessions for them to help them out. But the the attitude was, well, we'll just resume when, when you know, things come back. For flexible office spaces, it was slightly different because um, you're on flexible contracts. So that's kind of the gift and the curse of, of being... A flexible office provider you have a very attractive product because it's flexible but as soon as things start to go wrong people can cancel or downgrade very yeah. easily so we started to see that happen a lot people were exiting their contracts people were downgrading pretty significantly and we certainly have started to see um price impacts they weren't that obvious um on headline pricing so headline pricing stayed actually quite similar But behind the scenes, there was a lot more discounting and negotiation going on. And mm-hmm. so we were starting to see discounts of up to 15%, 20%, 30%. Even providers who weren't discounting at all pre-COVID and were full were even considering discounts now of 10-15% as well. So the pricing has certainly adjusted. Um, we'll see where where it gets to in another 12 months. It could it could get back to where it was before or even get go higher if the 
demand for flexible office space far outweighs um, anything else because everyone's decided flexible space is the way forward and we don't want traditional leases anymore. So is this is this what you think will happen? Let's get to your vision of the future of workplace. What's it going to be? Yeah, so I think I think flexible workspace has always been interesting. You know, I, I described to you earlier the the evolution over the past five years, where flexible office space went from half a percent of total office to seven percent, um, and the predictions that all the real estate um, research analysts were making pre-COVID was that seven percent would grow to thirty percent by twenty thirty. And the same analysts also said during the pandemic that, you know, this trend has been accelerated by 10 years. So it's like, oh, well, does that mean we're going to get to 30 <laughs> <laughs> percent? Um, and obviously we won't because the real estate industry does take a long time to adjust. But we've certainly seen um, a huge acceleration of that trend faster than it was before. And it's mainly coming from the traditional real estate landlords who previously were very resistant to flexible lettings because they were very used to a 10-year lease, right? A 10-year lease is secure, it's predictable. Um, you can basically, uh, you can finance entire buildings off of that income. And when you make that less predictable, uh, when you make that uh, more volatile and the pricing can go up and down, it's, it's much, much more difficult. But we're starting to see more and more traditional landlords move into flexible office space in their own way. And, you know, we've seen the biggest players. So um, British Land in April or May came out and said, we see flexible office space as the future. And they've never said that before. They're one of the most traditional landlords. Um, and in turn, you started seeing all of the traditional landlords, even people like the Crown Estates, who are very traditional, you know, backed by the royal family's wealth, for example, even those guys coming out and saying, yep, this is what we think is going to happen. So yeah, we believe, we believe as, as well as the most of the real estate industry that that 30% by 2030, um, A, is a lot more realistic than people expected it to be before. It was, a, it was kind of an industry joke before because it was like one of those classic 30% <laughs> by 2030, obviously someone's made up the soundbite. Um, but actually, um, it feels like a lot more realistic. But the other really interesting thing is, um, where will people work now, right? So like, is the office still going to be a thing now that we've all had the largest work from home experiment of all time? And pretty much the entire planet has proven that nearly every office job can be done at home, right? Not things like construction or, or you know, all those things that require you to be elsewhere, not be glued to a laptop. But most office jobs can be done at home. Um, and we actually did... Um, we actually did a survey of a thousand people across the UK from hundreds of small, medium-sized businesses um, around their future work preferences and also how they were working now. And what was quite interesting was some things that came out. So firstly, 70% of those respondents said that they had a positive experience working from home, but also 70% of them said that they would still want an office of some sort. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, it was overtly positive, but that doesn't mean that home wins over what over the office. It meant that they actually wanted both. Um, and we also worked out that according to those results, um, businesses may actually only need 34% of the office space that they had previously, right? Mm -hmm. And and the difference is between need and want. So, you know, you can do everything, right? We're, we're kind of doing a podcast virtually, 
Uh, ideally, we would be doing a podcast in the same room because, Absolutely. you know, there's there's a lot more you can get out of that human interaction. And the same thing is happening, what we're seeing when people are saying, yep, I can, of course, do meetings with my colleagues. I can pitch clients. I can, I can do all of that virtually. But do I really want to? And actually, am I going to lose a client if I'm always virtual and my competitor is now meeting them in person and taking them to lunch and dinner? So um, what what we think is going to happen is um, we are going to move into this hybrid world of work where there is going to be uh, a more permanent component of of home. But actually what what we're finding is that every single CEO, every single business leader, or even every single employee has their own very strong opinion over how they want to work now, right? Everyone has got a really, like Netflix CEO Reed Hastings came out and said, there's no way anyone can work from home. There's no way you can innovate. Everyone's got to come back to the office five days a week. And if you're not going to do that, you can't work at Netflix, right? Um, you have some CEOs who are saying that. You have some CEOs like the Shopify CEO or even the Twitter CEO who are saying, yeah, like we're, we're, we're going to adopt a long-term policy where you can work remotely full-time if you want. And the office is still going to be there, but it's optional. It's not, it's not a requirement. So what we're seeing is that pretty much like hybrid, you'll, you'll have some people on the extremes. You'll have some people mm-hmm. who still want office five days a week. And you'll have some people who are who still want fully remote, fully decentralized teams all across the world. But the vast majority will be somewhere in the middle where they have this hy- hybrid configuration. And the, the trickiest bit of that would be figuring out what is the right balance of hybrid for each company, for each department within that company, and even for each individual. So, you know, what percentage of time should your company be working from home? What percentage of time in the office and what percentage of time can they work anywhere else, local co-working spaces, meeting rooms. Um, And how does that differ for your software development team versus your sales team, right? Right. Maybe your sales team wants to be in the office five days a week because sales is like a team sport, whereas some other roles are more cerebral and actually you benefit from being alone um, and you benefit from being in in a quiet space. So what, what, what is going to be really fascinating is that every business and every individual and every team is going to have their own configuration of this hybrid workspace they own configuration between home hq anywhere in between and that's what i think the industry is not quite ready for because the industry Mm -hmm. always operated in a one-size-fits-all manner where we had one-size-fits-all pre-covid which was everyone works in office then we had one-size-fits-all after lockdown everyone works from home right (laughs) but one-size-fits-all is not going to work anymore when Every single employee on the planet has said, I've now proven I can work from anywhere. So why should I be forced to work from somewhere that I don't want to work? Because I've proven to you, you can trust me. So there's going to be a huge amount of employee empowerment, employee demands over being able to work where they want to. Um, And I think businesses that don't respond to that will lose talent, you know, Um, because it's such where you work is such a key component of. Uh, your life, right? So mm-hmm. you are someone who's got a family and you care a lot about family and you want to spend more time working from home as you have been for the last six, nine months. Suddenly your employer says, nope, that's all over. You're coming back Monday to Friday. You're then going to start to look for employers that are going to offer you what you want. Um, and so I think that's going to be the really interesting thing that plays out over the next sort of couple of years. Mm-hmm. 
Right. So we're getting to the to our time limit. So, but I only got one question left. So, where does Hubble fit in this future that you've just described? What do you want to do with it? Yeah, this is it's a good question. I think the 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 first thing that we've released, first new thing we've released, is something called a workplace strategy tool. Um, so, what that is 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 a way for businesses to survey their employees. Um, mm-hmm. look at their own management and culture, and then figure out what perhaps their configuration of hybrid workspace should be. You know, um, how much time should they have in the HQ, et cetera, et cetera, and then what solutions can can they bring? So if if the if the configuration if the ideal configuration is sixty percent time in the office, thirty percent time at home, and ten percent time elsewhere, how do you even deliver that to your employees? Right? Like, what is the physical manifestation of that solution? Um, so those those are some of the things that we're that we're thinking about at the moment. But the first tool we release is that workplace strategy tool. So any business completely for free can start to get a huge amount of data around what their employees are thinking, and that's going to be really important as every business and every decision maker, COO, HR director, CEO, tries to figure out what they do now um, in 2021. So that's the first thing we've done, um, and building on top of that, you know, we, we'll be looking to evolve Hubble into something new next year. Um, but we're still figuring that out behind the scenes. Maybe we can catch up in three to six months' time, and I can give you more detail on that. Sounds good. Do you see a lot of demand uh, for this uh, tool? Do you see a lot of companies using it, trying to figure out what's going on? Yeah, absolutely. And and a lot of it's, um, you know, you you used to have a a decision maker who could just basically say, well, we're gonna we're gonna pick this office, and we're gonna be in this office for the next year. And that same person now is having to deal with multiple demands from multiple people, everyone who has a very specific thing. So those people are really struggling and they need a way to to figure out how to how to make a decision. So yeah, we are we are seeing a lot of demand for that tool. Right. Dushar, thank you so much for uh, joining today. Thanks a lot for answering all the questions. Uh, I wish you best of luck uh, with uh, whatever you will decide to do with uh, Hubble next year. And I do hope to uh, talk again in some time to see uh, how it uh, how it works out. Absolutely. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thanks a lot. And this is it for our today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope that you enjoyed it. Please help us spread the word if you feel like it. Tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Music and audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at podcast at tech.eu. I will be back with another interview special soon. In the meantime, have a great time, stay safe, and take care. Bye-bye.